You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Reggie Ray. Reggie is a teacher and scholar in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition with four decades of experience with the practice of meditation. He's the founder and spiritual director of Dharma Ocean and an author whose writings include Touching Enlightenment, Indestructible Truth, and Secret of the Vajra World, as well as several audio programs, including Your Breathing Body and Meditating with the Body. And in the spirit of transparency with our listeners, Reggie is also a teacher with whom I've studied closely for the past eight years. In this episode, Reggie and I spoke about his recent experiences in dark retreat, as well as the true goal of meditation and Reggie's view of the meaning of spiritual practice. Here's my conversation with Reggie Ray. So Reggie, you've just come back from being on a dark retreat, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about it. Really, actually, I'd like to know a lot about it, meaning the setup, what does it mean to be on a dark retreat, so what's it like logistically, and also why would anyone want to go on a dark retreat? Well, it's true. Um, I did just return, and uh, uh, still, you know, sitting here with you, in some sense, I feel like I'm still in the darkness. So it's an interesting experience being back in the light, but seeing with some other eyes, seeing with eyes that are not physical and visual. So I'm still in an adjustment period, so we'll see what happens today. I think, you know, in talking about darkness practice, which is something that is taught in Tibetan Buddhism, but it's also practiced in other traditions, for example, in uh, Chinese Taoism and uh, some of the more esoteric forest traditions of Buddhism. I think it, it sounds rather arcane and removed from our ordinary life and even our understanding of what meditation is. So maybe in the beginning, what we should talk about a little bit is is what you know what is the ultimate goal of meditation, and within that framework, you know what is how does darkness practice really serve us? I think within the you know the Buddhist traditions and particularly the meditative tradition that I was trained in, the purpose of meditation is to help us make a transition in life, beginning on the one end with us being locked up in our habitual patterns and in the pettiness, really, of our whole self-maintenance project. To be a human in the ordinary sense is to be looking for comfort and survival and to ward off whatever pain there may be out there. And in the service of that project, we do all kinds of things. We construct this uh, idea of a self-identity that we're always trying to promote and protect. We use everything in our environment to try to feed our desire for pleasure. And really, we're fending off an awful lot of what life brings to us, pushing it away and trying to avoid it. The purpose of meditation is to help us dismantle our armor and the self-protection that we put around ourselves so that we can experience our lives in a much more open and naked way, much deeper, much vaster, much fuller, uh, 
so that we can develop in ourselves really a sense of freedom from this ego prison and not only freedom but um, love for what is and joy, joy in being alive. Now you might say, you know, why do we have to do that? You know, why wouldn't it be enough simply to um, try to maintain ourselves and try to ward off pain and, and get pleasure? And the answer is that within us, always, always, the deepest longing of our soul is to experience our life fully and without reservation. We have in ourselves a kind of intuition that everything in our life is meaningful and everything in our life is to be loved and everything in our life is an opportunity for expansiveness and joy. And this very deep longing is not served hardly at all by the modern world, and yet it's still there. And so many people that I meet are talking about the tremendous conflicts they have between the way they live and their deepest inspiration and longing as humans. Mm -hmm. So the purpose of meditation really is to um, help us dismantle the armor so we can live fully. And within that, darkness practice has a very unique role to play because darkness practice is the sort of quintessential meditation practice. It's the essence of meditation. It's the highest and most stripped down and most naked form of meditation you can ever do. What are you doing in the darkness? What are you doing a practice? Are you just sitting in the darkness? Well... Most meditation practice gives you something to do, as you know. Follow your breath, do your mantra, carry out some kind of visualization, chant something, whatever. And a lot of times we confuse that relative method with the goal of meditation. The goal of meditation is not the practices themselves, but it's the state of openness that they can lead to. The interesting thing about darkness practice is there's nothing to do. What You are simply stuck in a situation, and I say stuck because you commit yourself to a certain period of time. In my case, it's usually a month um, each year, and you go in, you turn the lights off, and there you are, and it's you, and it's the darkness. And there's really nothing to do. And if you decide you want to anesthetize yourself by going for a walk, it's not available. If you decide you want to pick up a book and read it or turn on the TV or do any of the millions of things we all do to distract ourselves from our own experience in our own life, it's not available. So the only practice in the darkness is simply to sit and open, sit and open, sit and open, and let go, let go, let go of whatever little self-protective device you happen to come up with. But now, not to be contrarian, uh, but to be contrarian, imagine you just took a drunkard and threw him in a dark prison for a period of time. They would, you know, they could just sleep. I mean, so there, there is an attitude or a posture. There's something you're bringing to the dark retreat besides just not doing anything. Do you know what I mean? You could just throw somebody in. They could spend the whole time 
daydreaming, planning what they're going to do, you know, thinking about all the regrets they have in their life or whatever. Well, that's a very good point, and that's why darkness practice is considered a somewhat advanced practice. I mean, anybody can do it for a day or two and get a huge amount out of it, but you wouldn't go into darkness for a week or two weeks or a month without a lot of training in meditation. And the particular training that you bring in is that through the practice of meditation, you learn the difference between your thinking process and your direct experience of being in your body. So in the darkness, what you're doing is you start thinking, you come back to your body. You come back to the feeling of your body. You come back to the experience of the darkness. And then you start thinking again, and you start spinning out, and you bring yourself back. It's interesting that solitary confinement, actually, if people are put in solitary confinement without any technique, they go insane over a period of time. On the other hand, a trained meditator being in a space by themselves for weeks actually grows hugely as a person. So there is a technique, and you're very right to bring that up, and the technique is you don't follow your thinking process. You simply bring yourself back over and over to the literal experience of being in your body, breathing, your heart beating, and your experience of the darkness all around you, which is a non-verbal, non-conceptual, totally literal experience. What, from your experience, happens to your brain, to your mind, by being in the darkness for that long? Well, I would say there are two things that happen. One is that your mind opens in a very unique kind of way. You, you know, when we meditate, we often discover moments of stillness, moments of peace. And we may feel a kind of impending sense of freedom. In the darkness, those experiences become much more unconditional, meaning that they become more limitless. So initially in the darkness, it's as if somebody, it's as if your mind had walls, even if they're way out there, you know, a thousand miles out, you have walls somewhere as a meditator. And it's as if somebody takes down all the walls and there are no walls anymore. There is no boundary. And there's an experience of your awareness being infinitely deep below you, infinitely vast all around you, and infinitely high above you. And there's a tremendous sense of joy that almost becomes frantic. You're, you feel such deep happiness that's, that such an experience is possible and that you can discover yourself as r truly being a completely unimprisoned person, a person who, um, for whom there are no boundaries and no limits and not even you're even free of the idea of a person because that experience of the vastness of one's own state of being really, it's a literal experience. It's not a mental one. And when you have let go, and when the mind opens abruptly, as it does, there's no, not even a person there to limit the experience itself. So it's a sort of unbounded freedom, and it can be extremely, uh, almost a terrifying kind of joy that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. Now, you said there were two things. Did you tell me both of them? No. I was um, 
specifically emphasizing the first one <laughs> because of what I'm about to talk about. The way I look at darkness is um, there are no brakes on the there are no brakes on the car at all. There are no brakes on your mind. One of the um, I would say most uh, important spiritual teachings that comes to us from the tantric tradition, which is the one I was trained in and the one I teach, is that simply experiencing the kind of freedom that I'm talking about and the kind of joy I'm talking about is really only step number one in the spiritual process. Because it's only step number one, because if you experience that, which you will do in the first few days of darkness practice, you know, or the first week, you know, that's going to come up and you're going to be, you're going to be there. If you get up and walk out of the darkness retreat at that point, what is going to happen is you're going to come back into your ordinary life and the uh, all of the habitual patterns that we've all grown up with are going to be reactivated and we're going to find ourselves living in, back in our small world, and we're going to have the benefit of knowing that the freedom is there, but we're not going to be tasting it as we go through much of our daily life and the hassles and the crying babies and the work situations, difficult relationships and whatever. So the second step on the spiritual journey, at least according to the tantric tradition, is that we have to dismantle the patterns of pettiness that are activated when we're in our ordinary lives. We have to dismantle them. And really, what happens in the darkness is, you know, once the mind really starts opening up, you start meeting some very interesting people. And these interesting people are people from your past, but they're people who are affecting you and actually taking you over right now, you know, as you live your life. These people are what I call, or what I might call, undeveloped or incomplete parts of ourselves that we have, uh, they're what Jung called complexes. They are little, they're sort of bundles of response, of conditioned response that have developed in relationship to all kinds of different situations throughout our whole life, going back to when we were, probably when we were in the womb. Mm -hmm. So, like, for example, in my case, I go into dark retreat, and uh, initial few days, very interesting, wonderful, and there's a part of me that like to say, okay, fine, you know, that's it, I'm out of here. But I stick with it because of this next step. And what starts to happen is I will begin to encounter emotional responses that are um, very limited and they're very petty and they arise in relationship to specific situations. Um, I'll give you an example, and we'll see how far we want to go with this. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, necessarily do an archaeology of my personal psyche, but I want to give some examples. Um, as children, all of us had this experience of being very little and having these big people in our environment. And the problem with the big people is they, in our estimation, they were supposed to take care of us, and they had the power 
to resolve things that we couldn't resolve, pain, hunger, fear, whatever, and they often didn't do it. And that experience is in us, and amazingly enough, as we discover through darkness practice, that um, experience of people who are bigger than us and who could help us but won't do it, and the resultant response of resentment and anger and even rage um, is activated all the time in our lives. It comes up all the time in relation to anybody we perceive as big. And and the problem with, with that um, response coming up is that we shut down. We shut down and we actually live in the emotional state of that two-year-old emotionally. You know, that's how constricted our world is. Um, in my case, I've identified about 65 different mm-hmm. what I call inferior personalities. Inferior not in the sense of being bad, but just limited. And, you know, different situations in my life activate them, and that's what we call samsara, that that we live from one limited state to another, you know, going from one to the other, depending on which external situation is going on out there. Do we feel betrayed? Do we feel undermined? Do we feel um, undernourished? Do we feel abused? You know, do we feel confused? Um whatever it may be, and we never get out. And that's what the prison is. It's it's the kaleidoscope of these inferior parts of ourselves. So what happens in darkness practice is something will come up. And the interesting thing about darkness is when they come up, they really come up, and they take over the field of consciousness. And um, I become the two-year-old. And the interesting thing is usually in life when that starts happening, we'll go call a friend or we'll turn on the TV or we'll eat some chocolate or we'll have a drink or we'll get in the car and go shopping. But in the darkness, there are no breaks. In other words, when it comes up and takes over the field of consciousness, there's nothing you can do about it. You're stuck. And amazingly enough, that's how you resolve that person is by becoming that person and living through the experience that that person had from the beginning until the end. And sometimes it takes a long time, six hours, 12 hours, three days later it comes back. But that's how you resolve karma, is by completing experience that got started, but because of our infantile and weak ego structure, we couldn't do it at that time. And now here we are, and that's what we're doing. Yeah, a couple of questions about that. Sure. You started by talking about meditation in general and yeah. darkness practice as a particularly advanced form of meditation. Yeah. Do you think that resolution of these complexes, as you're calling them, these incomplete parts of ourselves, reactive parts of ourselves, do you think that is what happens in meditation in general and it's just accentuated in darkness practice? Well, that's a very interesting question. I would say... If you meditate in such a way that you stay very close to your emotions and your experience and your body, the answer would be yes. It's um, In regular meditation, it's slower because you have these techniques to fall back on and you have the daylight. And the daylight's a huge distractor, you know, from our internal uh, inner life. Unfortunately, the way most people meditate which is to use techniques to ward off those kinds of experiences. Often meditation becomes 
the way it's usually practiced in this culture, it becomes a defense mechanism against resolving these fundamental karmic issues that really um, need to be resolved in order for us to grow as people. Okay, so it, it sounds like you, you do think that if meditation is taught and is in, in an embodied way, where yeah. you're close to your emotions, that and you stuck with it if you weren't going out, you know, being distracted left, right, and center, you might get deep into a lot of these. You do. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, I wouldn't even say it's. Uh, I mean, from a conventional standpoint, it's not slow. I mean, as you know, you know, the minute you get into your body, these things start coming up, and the instruction is stay with it, stay with the emotions. Stay with the body, stay with the process, and trust what's going on. It's really rather rapid. The difference in darkness is um, you go right to the bottom. And in meditation, it's a little bit more gradual. Normal meditation, it's a little bit more gradual. It's not quite as abrupt. Okay. And then the other thing that occurs to me while you're describing this, and you know, you're uh, quoting Jung in terms of describing these parts of you as complexes, is it sounds like what you're describing is the work of psychotherapy. I mean, that's what psychotherapy does. I mean, if you're sitting with a therapist and they say, what age do you remember feeling this way? And you come up with the age, and let's go back there. Let's bring that forward. I mean, isn't that what good psychotherapy does? Yes, it is. It is indeed. Um, but I think the the missing piece for most in most psychotherapy, in fact, all psychotherapy I know about, including um, some amazingly gifted people that I've had a chance to work with, both Jungians and uh, Hakomi people, is that through meditation, we develop a much greater capacity to experience those early states with clarity and confidence and, uh, and effectiveness. Um, for example, in Hakomi therapy, you work with the body... Uh, you're working with a particular complex. Um, it could take you, you know, months or years to unravel it, and uh, eventually you work through it. And having compared Hakomi practice with the dark retreat, and by the way, I think they're, they they go hand in hand. They're very complementary. But but darkness practice, uh, you know, if you're willing to engage things in that raw manner, it's just a lot quicker. And I think the the other thing is you're coming out of an experience of openness and freedom and joy, and that gives you much more, I think, fortitude to encounter the darkness. Whereas with conventional meditation um, or with, you know, conventional psychotherapy, you're working, the relative personality is trying to work with the relative personality. So there isn't, the bigness of scope really isn't there, and the the depth of trust and confidence in the process isn't really quite as strong as it is when you're coming from what we call the unborn mind. But just to challenge a little bit further sure. on this, if you have a therapist who is a loving, open witness, mm. aren't they providing a kind of support that could actually help the process unravel in a more accelerated way? I feel that's true. I mean, I think the ideal combination is to have a, a person on the relative level. I mean, you can call that person a therapist, but somebody who brings that gift to you, brings the gift of being a mirror, um, the gift of loving you, the gift of uh, creating an open environment. And within that framework, you're you're doing spiritual practice. You're Maybe you're doing darkness practice. I mean, to me, 
that's that you you need both you need the mentor you need the the loving friend the witness along with the practice and that's you know we talk about you need the teacher you need the therapist you need the community so i you know i wholeheartedly agree but one thing that's interesting that i found and this may come off as sounding you know terribly arrogant you know as uh, speaking from a uh, you know sort of uh, tibetan spiritual perspective but my experience is that that all the therapists that I've met, if they don't have that big meditative space, and some of them do, but if they don't have that big, open experience of their un- unborn, unconditioned self that they're coming from, they're limited, and they can only go as far as their experience lets them go, and then it kind of hangs you up. So that's the only caveat that uh, you know you have to. You have to really be aware that therapists are people, and they have their own limitations. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to go a little bit into these 65 little mini Reggies that mm-hmm. uh, occurred. Did you actually count them, Reggie? Is that how you came up with the number 65, or are you just sort of rounding? No, I had, um, last year I did count them. When I was in retreat last year, I came up with 50, and this year I believe I came up with a dozen or, or 15 additional ones, so that's where I get the 65. Okay, and each one of these is like a, an image of you at a certain age, and you saw the place where this little, I mean, tell me more like what the complex actually looks like. What qualifies is, okay, that's one that counts, adding it to the list. What qualifies it is whatever takes over the field of consciousness is a complex. It's one of these um, aspects. It takes over the field of consciousness. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's say that um, one of my things is betrayal. Um, when I was two, a couple of interesting things happened. Number one is my mother had a, another child, my brother, and at the same exact time, my father left for the war. So having been the darling of the family and the focus of the attention of these two people, all of a sudden, nobody was there. My mother was tied up nursing my baby brother. She wasn't available. My father was completely gone. So for me, at that time, and I know this uh, very well, because in darkness you do get to go back, and you get to go right back into that uh, two-year-old state of mind, I felt completely betrayed, cut off. I felt um, unloved. I felt that there was nowhere to turn, and I felt a kind of um, loneliness and even despair. It's interesting that such small children can experience so much, but, you know, they do. Now, you know, as an adult, this comes up in love relationships, and it can be activated by and is activated, interestingly, this is really interesting, it's activated by nothing. Absolutely nothing can activate it. For example, you know, my partner um, is unbelievably loyal to me and uh, loves me and I mean this is not a woman uh, who's problematic in that respect and there's no evidence ever you know that it's anything other than that and yet in dark retreat you know when I'm in normal life fine it's great you know this is a wonderful situation in dark retreat my mind literally manufactures scenarios where I'm betrayed and what happens is I go right back into that state of mind. I'm betrayed. 
I'm not loved, and all those feelings of loneliness and helplessness and despair and anger and rage all come up. And they don't just come up, they take over, and I become that that little child. And looking out from my meditation cushion as that little child, the whole universe looks like that to me, and that's what I mean by taking over the field of consciousness. Well, there are 64 other um, experiences of reality, if you will, with their own logic and their own you know, pain and their own reactivity, because that's what each has. There's a certain specific experience of pain, and then there's the reactivity that happens, and then there's the way the world looks. You know, there's 64 other ones. And what does the resolution look like within Dark Retreat? And then is it actually resolved with a sort of period in terms of your emergence from retreat? And, I mean, does this abandonment issue ever get resolved, let alone the 64 other issues? Well, uh, you know, that's a great question. And what happens in the process is that first that takes over the field of consciousness. And, you know, and, and that's a theme for me. So that, that I'm still working on that one after, you know, a number of years of doing this. But what, what begins to happen is you start to have two minds. One mind is going through this whole thing is I've been betrayed, I've been abandoned, you know, who needs her anyway? You know, I, I'm, you know, uh, the hell with her. I'm going to live my own life, which is part of the reactivity is the kind of, you know, desperado approach. And there's another part of me that knows I'm doing it and knows what she is and knows how in, that, that, it, that this is in a certain level ridiculous. Yeah. And they're both going on simultaneously. Now, that's interesting. And... What happens with me is I've developed a, a whole series of techniques. You know, I'll stay with the the two-year-old, and at a certain point, it's like enough. It's enough already. And there are these body, you know, techniques that I teach. There are certain ones that actually help you soften the two-year-old and help the two-year-old open up. And so I'll go back to those, and then I'm back in my, I would call my, bigger state of mind where I know I know who I'm with and I know who she is and I love her and I appreciate her and um, I'm joyful because of her. So you're kind of playing back and forth between the two-year-old and you could say the adult um, awareness or the, the spiritual awareness and then that's what happens afterwards. You know, what's happening now for me is, you know, being out of dark retreat is certain things, that particular one doesn't get triggered, but there are other ones that do. And I kind of, I see that person, and I actually enter into a dialogue with him. And so far, there are 65 hymns. I'm waiting for some hers. I really want some hers, but I haven't come up with any yet. They don't all have to be, you know, at all, uh, one gender. Mm -hmm. And you enter into a dialogue, and I'll say to him, you know, what's going on? You know, what's happening with you? And, uh, you know, what are we, you know, why are you being this way? And why are you trying to mess my life up? Why are you trying to undermine my relationship? So it really turns into a kind of act of imagination at a certain point, both in dark retreat and also in the normal world. Now, I can imagine someone listening to this, Reggie, who might say, wow, here's Reggie. He's been a Tibetan Buddhist scholar for so long, and he's gone on solitary retreats for three-plus decades. And this all sounds very psychological, like I could imagine that mm. 
someone saying that in a kind of critical way, like, wow, this is this all sounds very, very psychological. He's mm. working, he's having an interactive imagination dialogue with a, a two-year-old split-off part of him. This is what his solitary retreat practice has brought him to? And? <laughs> well, you see... I think the reason that that question might arise is that um, often in the West we tend to split spirituality off from psychology, and really um, there's a, there's a more um, a deeper and I think clearer way to put it. We tend to think of spirituality as engaging positive states of mind. You know uh, what I was talking about before. You know a sense of uh, peace and openness and freedom. And then psychology deals with our relative life, you know, our relative experience, our neuroses, our emotions. And that um, split is, is complete, from the tantric point of view, is completely and totally invalid. To do spiritual work is to engage the relative world of neurosis and pain and suffering and confusion and habitual patterns and emotions. And the reason it is, is that we spend most of our life evading our human experience. And that evasion takes a huge amount of energy. And whatever energy that we put into avoiding our lives and trying to keep them at a distance locks up our awareness. The experience of freedom is going to be incredibly limited if you're spending most of your psychic energy basically trying to maintain your ego on the relative level. From the tantric viewpoint, you have to liberate the relative. You have to liberate the locked-up energy of your habitual patterns in your relative psyche in order to be able to really be free. If the only freedom you ever feel is when you exit from your ordinary life and go into the big space, that's not real freedom. That's just taking a break. And there's nothing wrong with taking a break, but you're not really free because you always have to come back to the relative world and deal with the claustrophobia that goes along with our ego situation. So you have to really dig into the darkness. In terms of Tantra, you've got to dig into the darkness in order to really discover, as you do in darkness retreat, that there's no difference between darkness and light. What do you mean by that? The experience of light is the experience of darkness. The experience of darkness is the experience of light. In other words, what is it like being in the dark? Being in the dark is you can't see anything. You can feel. You know, your heart is the organ of knowledge in the darkness. You feel your life, and you're constantly waiting to see what's next. The idea of any kind of plan in some sense, requires the impression that you can see into the future, you can see into the distance. Well, that's that's gone. So you're in the darkness. It's an experience of waiting, and then responding to what comes up. You don't um, you don't initiate anything in the darkness. When you come back to the ordinary world, you're still in the darkness. You know, at least for a period of time. You know, because you realize that what life is about is waiting to see what comes up, waiting to see what life shows you, waiting to see the invitations and the opportunities and the obstacles to be dealt with. The idea of a self-generating 
ego that comes out of our fear, largely, and our paranoia, and our attempt to control reality, it doesn't really apply. And one rests, in a way, you know, even when you're back in the light, you're resting in that state of openness and freedom and non-caring. And then you can really respond to life rather than uh, having the huge confusion we all have most of the time between what we want and what's really going on or what we think we want and what's really going on out there. Now, when you were in dark retreat, you went to a particular cabin that was crafted or built for dark retreat, right? Mm. So it was constructed in a certain way, so absolutely not a shred of light could get in. This is true. Yeah. And I'm curious if somebody's listening Mm. and they would like to experiment with being in darkness, they may find a closet or a bathroom or something they can duct tape some black tarp or something like that. Mm-hmm. What do you think about people experimenting like that? And if you were to give them some instructions that they could experiment with, what might those be? Well, first of all, I think the um, the inspiration for the darkness is in all of us. And it's a legitimate inspiration. I mean, we are inspired by it. And, and I think the reason is the darkness is the unconscious. You know, the darkness, in a literal way, is our larger self. The darkness holds all of our journey. It holds all the possibilities of our person. In, uh, you know, Western dualistic thought, there's physical reality and spiritual reality. But in the Tibetan tradition, especially in the tantric tradition, the physical reality, the true physical reality that we live in, actually is already spiritual. When we sit in the darkness, we are sitting face to face with our own unconscious, our own Buddha nature, our own larger self. And these are all identical terms. So that's interesting. Okay, so we would like to experience some darkness practice. That's very sacred. That's a very uh, noble aspiration, and we should do something about it. Now, what could we do? Even if we've never meditated, it's very worthwhile to, you know, bathroom is my favorite thing, because you have a toilet, you have running water, and often you have a a blower you can turn on, you know, if you want to get the circulation going. You can go into your bathroom, you can go into your closet, that's fine. Hang some dark blankets, you know, over the door. Uh, When you're on the inside, you might want to run some black duct tape around the seams. And there you are. And um, try it for an hour, two hours, three hours. And just be in there and see what you find. And practice a little bit of meditation. It's good to go in with a technique, like I said. You know, be in the body, follow your breath, um, be with the darkness. um, And if you start spinning out, bring yourself back. And see what happens, because what happens is going to be appropriate to your own journey. And that's one of the extraordinary things about this practice is often we're given a technique and 25 different people do the same technique. It may or may not be appropriate to where you're at and what you really need. But the thing about the darkness practice, because it's so naked and stripped down, whatever needs to happen in your state of being is going to happen. So give yourself an hour or two and see what happens. And um, people that I work with at beginning level, middle level, advanced level, everybody 
has gotten a lot out of it. So I'm very encouraging to give it a shot. Would I go into darkness for a week without much training? No, because I think you'd be wasting your time to do it. I think you just probably end up spinning out the whole time. But you could work up to it. You know, for a year, you could try it for, you know, a day in your bathroom. And then year number two, maybe you go into a cabin for a couple of days. So, yeah, this is definitely um, worthwhile to do even right up front as a meditator. Mm-hmm. Now, something else I wanted to talk to you about, Reggie, that I think mm-hmm. is related is that you are a teacher in what's known as the practicing lineage. Yes. Yeah. And I'm curious how you define spiritual practice, how you define meditation. I mean, you've defined it here or talked about it here in a pretty broad way in terms of this process of dropping our armor and opening to greater and greater freedom and liberated experience. So what does it mean actually to you to uphold this idea of the practicing lineage? Well, one possible way to describe this is in terms of techniques. Meditation is sitting down and following your breath, or meditation is doing a mantra. And to me, it's not helpful because you can either follow your breath, as I mentioned before, as a way of really opening yourself to your larger spiritual self, or you can use following the breath as a way to shut down and defend yourself against your larger self. So I don't think talking about it in terms of technique is really very helpful. Maybe um, what I can do is talk about the sort of goal or the highest practice of Tibetan Buddhism. And then really uh, what I would want to say is that any technique that is in service of this particular goal, you know, to me that would be, that would qualify. So what we could say is that really the, uh, you know, the practice of meditation is to develop over time an attitude of complete acceptance and openness towards all situations and emotions and towards all people. Because it's in the situations of life that the wisdom of the universe comes through. It's in the emotions and it's through the people. It's through the relative world that the wisdom of the universe and the liberating fire of the universe is communicated to us. It's not in some abstract, empty state. It's actually through our lives. So the purpose of spiritual practice is to develop that unconditional acceptance and openness. Now, you know, we do have the armor, and we do have the hiding places, and we do have the defense mechanisms. So when we try to do that, you know, when we sit and we're in our bodies and we're practicing meditation in some way, and we have this idea and this intention to really open, of course we run into all of the ways in which we don't open, all of the ways in which we're closed. We meet them, you know, the, the a genuine tradition of meditation is really focused on meeting the obstacles and letting them go and opening, meeting the defense mechanisms and letting them go and opening further. When we do that, there's going to be, in the beginning, uh, pain and there's going to be fear. How do we work with that pain and that fear? We open ourselves to the pain or to the fear and we welcome it unconditionally. 
when we are willing to practice with that intention and that process, over time, we dismantle all of the barriers that get between us and our own lives or that get between us and our larger selves. It's a slow process, but it's a process of opening and opening and opening. And, you know, in the same way that the neurotic parts of ourselves can take over the field of consciousness, we begin to find that actually our larger self becomes the defining feature of our consciousness. You know, we begin to live in a bigger and bigger world, and the universe itself appears constantly as, a, as bigger than we ever imagined, and more going on, and there's more joy, and more interesting experiences, and further universes to, um, to explore. So I would say, you know, a legitimate spiritual practice, or one that really fulfills the design of the Buddha's, you know, meditation teachings, involves letting go of the false self, and opening to the larger self, opening to the bigger world, and using the techniques in service of that process of opening and letting go. You know, at one point recently, I mentioned to someone that I know that you were on retreat. And interestingly, this person said to me, God, you know, Reggie's on another retreat. He's, he's I mean, kind of, there was a judgment in it mm-hmm. that was something like, you'd think after all of these retreats that he would have, you know, quote unquote, graduated mm-hmm. by now. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like he'd be done with having the need to go on a retreat. And I think there's also sort of a judgment about the practicing lineage in that. Mm-hmm. In it's like, wow, you guys are going to practice forever, huh? Are you ever going to arrive anywhere? You're just going to keep practicing forever. And I'm curious what you would say to that. Well, the ultimate practice is the practice of life. The ultimate meditation is living in the world, daily life. The reason I go on retreat is the same reason I'm in the fire of a relationship. It's the same reason I teach. It's to find out what life is. It's an exploration. It's a discovery. Anyone who feels that they've discovered everything there is to discover, then they don't need to practice and they don't even need to live. But if you're interested in what reality is, and you also recognize your own limitations as a person, there's going to be a fire in you that is going to burn you, and you're going to be attracted to that fire, and that fire is life itself. And sometimes life will call you into the darkness, and sometimes it calls you into the light. It was quite interesting for me this uh, past weekend I had the uh, the sort of great uh, privilege and honor, really, to uh, do a weekend with the uh, one of the great leaders of the Jewish Renewal Movement, Rabbi Zalman Schachter, and also one of the great uh, Catholic theologians who has done as much to open up the church and its thinking as anybody, you know, anybody in the last 50 years, Matthew Fox. And I came directly out of the darkness right into that weekend. And the uh, interesting thing was I came with 
a lot of uh, questions and um, I was, you know, in a way dreading it because, you know, I'm not, it wasn't my program. It was this collective thing that I didn't even know where it was going to go. It wasn't even Buddhist, you know, and whatever. And it turned out um, that the nakedness that had um, really sort of uh, happened, you know, during the darkness retreat enabled some things to happen that were completely mind-blowing. And um, and I think that's really how it works. I think, you know, one practices always. I mean, you know, the Buddhist point of view, Tibetan, the tantric point of view, is that the the path is the goal, that there is no end point for humans ever, that, you know, as humans before we were born and no doubt long after we die the process for us is growing changing opening experiencing life at deeper levels seeing where we get stuck and going further sometimes the practice is official meditation and other times in the tantric tradition it's simply living life the problem with sort of saying well you get to a certain point and then you've done what you're going to do is it's not very realistic because we never get to the end and there are always more there's always more armor to shed there's always a, a more openness of heart to develop no matter who you are so I'd be interested to hear uh, you know if your friend really feels that they've achieved everything they want to and now they can just kind of kick back I mean to me that's inconceivable and in our tradition, it's actually said that, you know, when you die, uh, it's just a, it's just like any other moment, and you keep right on going. And the process, the path is the goal. You know, the purpose of life is to change, to practice and change. Uh, keeps right on going. So that's kind of my point of view. Endless, the endless journey. Thich Nhat Hanh says eventually we become stars, and then we become galaxies. I mean, you know, why stop here? You know, why not keep going? Why not fulfill the whole thing? Wonderful. I've been speaking with Reggie Ray. He's the author of the Sounds True book, Touching Enlightenment, Finding Realization in the Body, as well as a 20-disc series that we created called Your Breathing Body. There is a set of 10 CDs of beginning meditation practices and then more advanced practices in Volume 2. Reggie, thank you for sharing with us some post your dark retreat. Thank you. My pleasure. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. <laughs>